Okay, so this morning, I'm going to start right here. Legalism must die. <laughs> Legalism and all of its forms must die. I hope by the end of this morning that is clearly drilled into our hearts and minds. I hope that we come to understand why legalism must die. I'll define legalism. I've tried to get a, as, as broad a definition, and tried to, but which makes it wordy. So just track with me here. But legalism, a series of rules and laws, you could also put in there customs, elevated over the gospel of grace. So yes, the gospel of grace is preached, but you also must hold to these certain laws, standards, customs, and rules if the gospel is going to stick to you. Must be adhered to for a person to be considered right before God. I'm going to tell you right now, legalism is toxic. It is contagious. And it continually attempts to rear its ugly head in the local church. As a pastor, I can honestly tell you that it is almost easier to create a legalistic environment in the church than it is to create an atmosphere that is truly grace-based and founded in love. I'm going to say that again. It is almost easier to create an atmosphere of legalism in the local church than it is to create an atmosphere that is grace-based, rooted in love. Some of you may be wondering what happened to my beard. <laughs> Madeline went out of town this week. If you don't know, that's my wife. So she left me at home with five kids. <laughs> Just from the mere stress of it, it fell out. <laughs> Legalism. It is fear-driven, it is rigid, it is unbending, it is bondage, and it is slavery. I think it makes sense, as I, as I was thinking about our culture this week, why legalism is so prevalent. I mean, so much of our culture is this rugged, individualistic American ideology, this deep-seated sense that if you have something, you've worked for it, we're told not to ask for help. We find a deep sense of satisfaction and work that leads to great accomplishments, so it makes sense that we'd have to earn. And then we add on top of that our concept of we always have to pay for something. We have to pay for things that we've done wrong. We've got to pay for our crime. And so when it comes to the gospel, there's this sense where we have to pay for something, right? I think actually one of our more admirable ethics as a culture is this ethic of hard work. I think that is an ethic that is quickly slipping away. It's admirable. The Bible never admonishes us to be lazy or apathetic. But here's the paradox of faith. Sometimes our works can actually work against us when it comes to our faith in Christ we're going to have to fight against legalism in all its forms in the local church. That's not a new issue. In fact, the passage that we're looking at this morning is going to be in Acts 15. Everybody over in the Bible say, Word. Word. That is exactly why we're starting in Acts 10. Okay, we're going to flip back. We're going to set the stage. We're going to take a detour back into a chapter we've looked at before because the issue should have been handled already. In Acts chapter 10, as you remember, there 
are two distinct visions. One vision held by a man uh, of the name Cornelius. He was a Roman centurion in the city of Caesarea. He had a vision during his evening prayer, and an angel of the Lord told him to send to Joppa and bring back a man by the name of Simon Peter, who was going to bring a message of salvation. And so this centurion, this guy Cornelius, a Roman Gentile, sends for Simon Peter, a Jew, in the city of Joppa. And it just so happens that it's a delegate, delegates from Caesarea arrive in Joppa. Simon Peter's up on the rooftop of the house enjoying the Mediterranean air. His tummy starts rumbling, and it's about time for lunch. And then he slips into a vision. And it just so happens the vision involves food. And so this great sheet is unfurled in front of him, and on this sheet are all kinds of animals, clean and unclean animals, things that were ritually right and things that were ritually wrong, ceremonially clean, ceremonially unclean. And then he hears the national anthem of Texas, rise, kill, and eat. (laughs) It was enough to make a devout Jew nauseous. Clean and unclean things do not mix. Ritually clean and ritually unclean do not mix. And then this this call from heaven, this clarion call, what God has made clean, do not call common. And we came to discover that the vision was not about food. I mean, to some extent it was, yes, because the ceremonial law was done away with. And the church, that custom, that dietary restriction was over. But it had more to do with people. Because there were people who were considered clean and people who were considered unclean. There were people that were in and there were people that were out. There was a distinction. Humanity loves to draw lines of distinction. So Peter and friends make their way to Caesarea because God is about to dissolve the distinction between Jew and Gentile through the message of the gospel. And so Peter arrives at Caesarea. He goes from Joppa to Caesarea, and he walks into the house of Cornelius, and it turns out it's not just Cornelius there. It's a whole entire house full of Gentiles. And these devout Jewish believers walk in, and they're like, oh, wow, this is gnarly. And Peter says, hey, why'd you send for us? And Cornelius goes, hey, you're supposed to bring a message of salvation. And so Peter goes, all right, well, here it goes, fellas. And so he starts sharing the message of the gospel, and then it happened. Verse 44 of chapter 10, while Peter was still saying these things, literally in the middle of his message. By the way, just so you understand, the moment of salvation is not the moment that you say a certain prayer. It's not the moment that you do a certain ritual. The moment of salvation is the moment you believe that Jesus Christ has died for your sins, that he was buried and he's risen. That moment you believe in Christ is the moment you're saved. You can get saved at this moment. So as they're listening to the message, the Holy Spirit falls on all who heard the word because they believed. And listen to this. And the believers from among the circumcised who who had come with Peter, they were what? Why were they amazed? Well, the text tells us. Because the gift of the Holy Spirit was being poured out even on the Gentiles. And this is beyond significant, family. This is like a mini Pentecost of sorts for the Gentile people. Because you have a group of folks, Gentiles, they did not have the law of Moses. They were not circumcised in the flesh according to the law and customs of Moses. They did not practice ritual cleanliness. They probably had bacon on the table. 
because they were awesome, who did not first become Jewish. They received eternal life, and the same Holy Spirit that the Jewish believers had received, it was all by grace through faith. It blew their minds. And news of it spread throughout the whole region. In fact, news made its, all the way, uh, its way all the way to Jerusalem. And we're sitting here as Gentiles going, well, this is the most fantastic shift of the gospel because now the gospel, the door is open now to the Gentile peoples. We have hope. But there was a group in Jerusalem who was like, that's unacceptable. Chapter 11, verse 1, Peter and friends are put on trial. It says, Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had received the word of God. There's party and celebration. Wow, we never saw that coming. But in verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party, out of all the parties I've been invited to in my, my lifetime, there's pampered chef parties. I know there's a sales pitch. But if someone invites you to a circumcision party, are you RSVPing? I don't know what you're selling, man, but I ain't coming. Uh, Saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. You went to those unclean people. And Peter's like, oh my gosh, it's so much more scandalous than that. We didn't just eat with them. Did you know? And Peter's like telling them, the whole dietary restriction thing we're all about, it's over. That guy in the back that loved bacon was like, yeah. I knew it. See you later, dude. BLTs, yeah, that'd be sweet. And Peter goes, no, 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 it wasn't about food. But that whole thing, that's over. But here's the reality. What, what God has just shown me is that we no longer have the right to categorize people and call them common or unclean because what God has made clean, do not call common. And Peter goes on to describe what happened while he was at Caesarea And he he reasons, he goes, look, I preach the gospel. They receive the Holy Spirit, verse 17 of chapter 11. If God then gave them the same gift as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus, who was I? Who was I that I could stand in God's way? That's kind of heavy. Did you know preachers of legalism are actually standing in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The issue should have been done here. Chapter 11, done. But for whatever reason, well, I know exactly what it's like. How many of you enjoying the fresh weeds of spring? Isn't that great? I've got a couple of grass blades sticking up between, just a sea of weeds. And they do not die. Dallas grass, crab grass, Satan grass, you can do anything you want to. You pour gasoline on it. I'm not, a, I'm not an arborist. Don't trust me. But you can dig it up. just keeps coming back. Well, that's what legalism does. All it takes is just a little of a dandelion. It just spreads, and it starts to take root. So as we turn our attention back to where we left off last week, Paul, Barnabas, and friends have just completed the first missionary journey who they they primarily reached. Who are the people they primarily reached? Gentiles. And they come back. They made this huge loop. They left from Antioch and Syria. They went across the island of Cyprus. They went up into present-day Turkey. They made a big loop there. They came all the way back down to the island of Cyprus. They sailed all the way back to Antioch and Syria. And they're celebrating, and they're like, wow look what God has done. They returned back to the missionary church that had sent them. 
Verse 27 of chapter 14. I know I said 15. We'll get there. When they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them. To who be the glory? To God. They're not like, hey guys, look what we did. Look what God did through us. And how he opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He's like the door that was cracked with Cornelius that swung wide open and they're flooding in. And they're rejoicing. Verse 28, they remain there no little time with the disciples. But by the time we get to chapter 15, verse 1, these weeds start popping up. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. It is a grotesque affront to the gospel that somehow salvation through Christ hinges on some ceremonial surgery for it to take hold. It's crazy to me the things that are taught and the things that people believe today as far as salvation. There are some who believe you have to be baptized in a certain church building by a certain church denomination or you are not saved. There are some who who teach that if you don't attend church faithfully, or give faithfully, you will not be saved. There are some who teach that if you don't perform certain sacraments, you will not be saved. And thus salvation is presented as kind of a fickle thing. Some days you have it and some days you don't. Legalism makes God Petty. It makes him a tyrannical taskmaster of the trivial. As he weighs our day. Some days you do good, some days you do bad. God's sitting there with his checklist. Oh, you watched that, did you? Oh, you drank that, did you? Oh, you did, you went there? All right, well, you went to church. I'll go ahead and erase one of those. You gave money to the Boy Scouts. I'll give you half a check there. And all of a sudden, we're walking around, days we failed, Days we've done good. I want us to think about this for a second. God chose to crush his son. And somehow, that's all going to be undone because a a little flap of skin isn't cut off. I want you to think about how, how much that's just complete lunacy. God chose to crush his son. And that salvation that we receive by faith is somehow going to be undone because we don't attend church or because we don't get dunked in a certain tub.
I have an issue with that. We should have an issue with that. Paul and Barnabas had an issue with that. So verse 2, it said, And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, that basically means they had a big dissension. They debated with them. Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles, to the elders about this question. They're like, hey guys, it's time for us to go up and we're going to go seek a higher authority. I find it fascinating that even Paul and Barnabas felt it necessary to seek out a higher authority. They were not authority in and of themselves. There are too many people today who believe they are authority in and of themselves. That they are the ones who are the bearers of complete orthodoxy. And by the way, that's not a bad word in the church. Some of us hear orthodoxy and you're already halfway asleep. Orthodox, all it means is sound doctrine, right teaching. And if there's something that we're going to get right, let it be salvation. If there's something that we're going to get right, let it be what must I do to be saved. Let's get that right. Can we start there? Okay, we can talk about eschatology and end times and the order of events and when Jesus is going to return, when the church is going to get raptured, the church is not going to get raptured. Maybe there'll be a thousand years. Maybe not going to be a thousand years. Maybe there's going to be time at Armageddon. Maybe there's not going to be a time at Armageddon. Maybe we're going to roll it up. Maybe we won't roll it up. Maybe he unrolled. Maybe pull it out. Let's just leave that alone for a while. Let's just get salvation right. Okay. So, being sent on their way, verse 3, by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles that brought great joy to all the brothers. Why did that bring great joy? Because they were rejoicing that the Gentiles had received the gospel by grace through faith. And they were being set free. And they themselves, as Jewish believers, were being set free. They no longer were in the bondage of the law. So Jew and Gentile were being set free through Christ. That made them one. They were rejoicing. But there was a group of people that were not rejoicing. So verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they declared all that God had done with them. It's so amazing what God has done. But there's a group of legalists and they're gritting their teeth. They're biding their time. They cannot wait for the opportunity to speak. Verse 5, but some believers. These are believers. Okay, so they have received Jesus as their Savior. But they still live in bondage, and they want others to live in bondage. They belong to the party of the Pharisees. They rose up, and they said, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary to circumcise them and to order them. Oh, legalists love orders, don't they? You are ordered. You are under authority. You are ordered to keep the law of Moses fascinating to me they're mentioned they're called pharisees that means they were the most biblically trained people be careful when people are so biblically trained they can prove just about anything even if it's completely contradictory to the gospel of grace distorters of the scripture pharisees are not exactly painted with the brightest colors in the New Testament, I can imagine Paul standing there as a Pharisee of Pharisees, studied under Gamaliel, was like, oh, guys, we're about to have it out. They believed and taught it was absolutely essential for the Gentiles to be circumcised and they'd be ordered to keep the law. David Peterson writes this. I think this is fascinating. These particular Pharisees had apparently come to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, but had not abandoned their allegiance to Moses and the law. They still were idolaters, of the law. 
in traditions of Moses. They use the language of necessity, implying that this is God's will. That's scary, isn't it? When somebody walks up to you and says, this is God's will, thus saith the Lord. By the way, that's why it's so important to seek out truth, like true orthodoxy. There are too many times today, and I see this often in Bible studies, well-intentioned Bible studies, but awful Bible studies, where people go like this, hey, let's just open our Bibles, and we'll read, and you tell me what the verse means to you, and I'll tell you what the verse means to me. As if God's perfect word is based upon our fickle understanding of his scripture. That's not how the Bible works, family. It's not free to open to any and all interpretation. That's heresy. The Bible was written by specific authors under the Holy Spirit for a specific purpose. It is our job to seek out that specific purpose and the specific truth of this word. Anyway, that's a freebie. So these believers are saying, it's, thus saith the Lord, it's God's will that they be circumcised. It is God's will that they keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders, they start having a conversation together. Verse 6, they considered this matter, and that is one of our main responsibilities, by the way, in the church as elders and as shepherds. Our job is to ensure that we are giving you right teaching. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up. And I guarantee you it went silent. The great apostle Peter, the great preacher of Pentecost, stands up. He says, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. What is he talking about right there? By my mouth the Gentiles should hear. Who is he talking about? Cornelius. He's like, hey guys, don't you remember? I was at Joppa, they sent for me, I went to Caesarea, I declared the gospel. Verse 9, or verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction. There was no distinction made between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. And I love it. He's drawing the attention to the heart. Legalists are always focused on the outside. God sees the heart. We could just wrap our minds around that, that God is the one who sees and inspects our hearts. He knows what's going on beneath the surface, even if the outside doesn't show. I love Tom Thumb. You know why I love Tom Thumb? There are no lines. It's certainly not the prices. The reason I love Tom Thumb, and it was funny, I mentioned this, and somebody brought me a Tom Thumb gift card after the first service. I also love Maserati. <laughs> no gift cards for that. So the reason I love Tom Thumb is everything there is perfect. Their fruit is perfect. Their vegetables are perfect. I mean, they're flawless. They're blemish-free. You want to know why? Because they pick through it, and anything that doesn't look shiny and good on the outside, they throw it away. And that's what legalistic churches do. They focus on the outside of the fruit. And when you have a blemish and you don't match the color of everybody else, they throw you away. And I'm more like, well, let's look be like Walmart fruit. <laughs> Some of you are like, hey, don't bash Walmart. Please tell me you catch the drift of the illustration. I heard that. 
Someone over there went, yeah, Walmart does have terrible fruit. <laughs> it ain't no sprouts. Okay. Well, I don't know what it is with our obsession with the outside of the person or the outside of our life, but God sees the heart. And you know what? Salvation, it begins in the heart. God cleanses the heart. And guess what happens when your heart changes? Dude, your life changes. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. My heart is filled with Jesus. So I talk about Jesus. Verse 10, now therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Ooh, that's strong language. A yoke, why are you putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Peter's like, look, we couldn't lift it up. We couldn't bear under the pressure of the legalistic law. We couldn't hold it up. It crushed us. And why are you putting God to the test? That same structure, that same language is found in Acts 5 when Peter turned to Ananias and said, why are you putting God to the test? Do you all remember having a good old Ananias? How about Sapphira? How about testing of God work out for them? It was a bad day in the Ananias and Sapphira household. God struck them dead. What Peter is saying here is, you legalists, you're on thin ice. Not only are you teaching uh, bondage, not only are you trying to put shackles on people, you yourself are, in, are, are really not that far from judgment. I quote here again from the Pillar New Testament commentary, putting God to the test is another way of talking about hindering, a way of talking about hindering his will. I know that word is missing, but inserting on something which is against his will stretches his patience and invites judgment. Peter's like, you're literally begging for judgment when you preach legalism. Look at verse 11. These are the final words recorded by the Apostle Peter in the book of Acts. You want to talk about going out stout. Look at this. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. We are saved by grace through faith. It is a gift. There was a discussion, they all agreed, and they came to a very strange decision. Some of us are going to be like scratching our heads like, that's weird. Verse 19, Paul and Barnabas spoke, James the brother of Jesus spoke, and then there was a decision. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. Let's not trouble them. But should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. Apparently those were issues. They were. And they are. You see, pagan practice, uh, the pagan temples that littered Rome and the Roman colony uh, and everything that was under Rome, it, they were littered with temples where they practiced cult prostitution. They would strangle animals. They would drink blood. There were animals sacrificed to false gods. What they're saying is, hey, flee that life you've been safe from. Don't go back to it. Not only is it a poor testimony of Christ, but it's choosing death. Family, we're to be in the world, but not of the world. You've heard stuff like that, right? That sounds semi-biblical. We're supposed to be in the world, but not of the world. 
And so everybody in the, in the church, they all agreed. Verse 22, it seemed good to the apostles and to the elders of the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas. I don't know. I'd probably stick with Judas. I don't know if I want Barsabbas or Judas. What would you prefer? Would you rather be called Barsabbas or Judas? Well, there's a whole connection with Judas Iscariot. I don't know. Anyway. Uh, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. And what I love about the Bible is we have a 2,000-year-old letter preserved for us. And I get it. It's a lot of scripture, but I'm going to read it to you because it's a cool letter. And imagine how different the letter would have been had the decision gone the other way. Maybe it'll read something like this. The brothers, both the apostles, the elders, to the brothers, who are the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, uh, Syria and Cilicia, greetings. You need to be circumcised. And you need to hold to the law of Moses. We hereby order you. How terrible would that have been? Since we heard that some persons have gone out from among us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, they did that on their own. Verse 25, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you, our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus. They're bragging on Paul and Barnabas to the church that they planted. Isn't that beautiful? So not only is the church at Jerusalem saying, hey, look, what we're going to tell you, we endorse this, this is orthodox teaching, but we also endorse these two teachers. Men who have risked their lives, verse 27, we have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same thing by the word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. And the church at Antioch would have heard that and gone, we've already fled those pagan practices. We're walking in freedom in Christ. We don't go seek out the priest of Zeus any longer. We've been set free. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. How do you think the church responded to that? They rejoiced. Truth and orthodoxy should rejoice the heart. So when they were sent off, they went to Antioch, verse 31. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. There were guys there that were like, oh, thank goodness, that whole circumcision thing. That was, that was rough, but Cool. Everybody else was sitting there going, we're free. We're not in bondage any longer. Judas and Silas, themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened. Verse 33, after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers. Verse 35, but Paul and Barnabas remained at Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And that is exactly where we'll pick up next week. In the city of Antioch, we are going to witness one of the greatest fractures of relationship. Uh, almost anywhere in the New Testament. Heartbreaking passage we'll see next week. But before we get there, let's talk about a few applications. First, I hope this is clear. Legalism must die. I say repeatedly because it keeps springing up. For whatever reason, it, it pops up like weeds, no matter how much it's rooted or driven out. We see it in Acts chapter 10, uh, Acts 11, Acts 15, and then Paul later has to write to the church at Galatia, a church that he had planted, because legalism again sprung up. And I would love to take you through the entire book of Galatians. Some of you are going to be grateful that I'm going to say I'm not going to take you through the whole book of Galatians right now. 
but I will take you through a few verses. Paul writes this in Galatians. He says, For freedom, Christ has set us what? Uh huh. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't turn back to the pagan practices and don't go and put yourself under the law of Moses and bondage to it. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that is, places himself under the law, that you're obligated to keep the whole law. You're severed from Christ. Pretty graphic language, actually. You would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. And what is crazy to me, somewhere between the day I got saved and the day I, I graduated from seminary, I had been saved by grace, but I started to live by works of the law. I literally submitted myself to bondage. And I would go down this list every single day. Like, did I read enough? Did I pray enough? Did I study enough? Did I share the gospel with enough people? Oh, uh, well, today was a total failure. I, I can't believe that I, I watched that program or I, saw, I thought that thought. Oh, man, I'm, I'm just failing God. I felt like I was failing God constantly. Because law is a taskmaster. It is brutal. It doesn't care. Its desire is to crush you. And crush it did. And to the point where I almost reached a total depressive meltdown because of the crushing weight. And then somewhere between graduation and today, I have been set free. And today, I walk in grace, knowing that I'm loved. I know that when God opens, well, he doesn't have a wallet, but if he did have a wallet, it'd be filled with everything because he holds everything in the palm of his hand. Can you imagine his wallet? You remember in the billfold, the, the little section that had, before we had cell phones that we pay with every, anyway, there, there used to be pictures in there. And proud papas and proud mamas would open up their wallet and they would show off pictures of their kids. Nobody else cared, but we didn't care. Everyone else was like, oh, they're such a cute kid. That's great. How long do I have to fake it? But you would show them because you were proud. And you know what daddy does? He shows you off because he's proud of you. Daddy loves you. You were loved today, not because of what you've done. You were loved because he loves you. And you're accepted into his presence, not because of anything you do. It's because Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He was crushed for you. It's the greatest declaration that God loves you. And he was buried and he's risen from the dead. That means he now is the giver of eternal life. It is a gift and he gives it away freely, which leads to my second point. We are made righteous, that is made right before God, by grace through faith. Here is our anthem. I want us to read this together. And it's always hard to start at the same time, isn't it? Because you're like, is he going to start now? For I got you. Okay, you guys want to start together? I'll do it on three. One, two, three. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Isn't that wonderful? by grace you've been saved. Family, it's not of works. 
If you've received Jesus as your Savior, you believed. You've received a gift. Enjoy being loved. And then finally, faith is freedom, but law is death. If you have any intention of living a joyous Christian life, you have to leave behind legalism in all its forms. That's why the early church was rejoicing and encouraged. Because faith, it's freedom. And law is bondage. <laughs> and so I just want to encourage you, I admonish you as believers. Some of you, like in first service, there was a gal who was visiting. It was her first time. She was really worried because I didn't talk enough about sin. And it's dangerous to just talk about grace, isn't it? Oh, it's risky. It's easy believism. I almost said H-E double hockey sticks to that, but I didn't. Grace is risky. And for whatever reason, God felt it was worth the risk. If you find yourself or your family in a church that is teaching legalism in any shade or fashion, you need to run. It comes across as a quasi-Christian life, but it's not the real Christian life. And some of you are like, well, give me a list. What am I supposed to do? What am I not supposed to do? I'm sorry, there is no list. You read the scriptures. You were led by the Holy Spirit. You do not, do not submit yourself to a yoke of bondage any longer. And you allow God to lead you and there's going to be a time where what happens in your heart will reflect on the outward man or woman. But don't change the outside without allowing God to change the inside. It's just a just a clean outside cup with just a bunch of junk in it. Amen? All right, Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace. I say that truly because I have been a miser with it. I have given it out at times. As if I somehow cornered the market on it and I could control its, its flow. You've risked it to give us dangerous grace, scandalous grace. Each one of us could list off all the things that we've done wrong. We've repented a time and time again for sins we've long since been forgiven of. Some of us don't know you, Jesus. If you're here today and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, please listen. Jesus truly did die for your sins. He was buried and he's risen. And the Bible declares that all who believe in him, all who trust in him, all who turn to him will be saved. It's a gift. He wants to give you the gift of life. If you choose not to take the gift of life, that's your choice. But that gift is always there. Eternal life. If, that, if you want to receive the gift of eternal life in the quietness of your heart, tell Him, Lord Jesus, I believe. 
I believe that you died for me. I believe you were buried. I believe you rose. Please, Jesus, save my life. I don't know much about you, but I know I need a Savior. If that is your heart's prayer, the Bible declares you've just passed from death to life. You've received the Holy Spirit. You are forever a child of God. Nothing, not even yourself, could pry you out of His hand. You were loved. And so, Father, I pray that you pour love on this auditorium from the top of the roof all the way down to the soles of our feet, that it literally become like a pool of love in here that we swim around in it. Your love and grace wash over us. We are loved. We love you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, stand together. Uh, and if you have that Maserati card, that's fine. It's in the parking lot. Now go into the world in peace and in freedom. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Honor all men. Strengthen the faint-hearted. Support the weak. Help the suffering. And share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. So we meet again, same time, same place next week. And do not forget, family, you are loved. Now go shine it on the rest of the world. Have a great week.